Uh, again, thank you. Thank you everyone for being here tonight. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more note-bound tonight. Uh, I had a, yesterday, I had the privilege of teaching at uh, Southern Seminary. Uh, my supervisor was on a teaching trip uh, um, that took him away from his class, and so I was able to teach, teach his fill-in for him um, yesterday. So we went through the book of uh, Proverbs in, an old, in another Old Testament introduction class. So um, I thought I'd just uh, share with you a little bit what I shared with them yesterday. Um, you don't have to turn there. It's just very short. But uh, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 4, we read this. I found this to be so significant when I read it. Where, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. I think that's fantastic. And now, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. So, you know, clean is good, right? Everybody likes a clean house. Uh, I don't have a manger, but if I did, I suppose I'd probably like for it to be clean, you know. And uh, that's not chastised here in this verse, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But then we get that second part of the verse, don't we? But abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. The reason that speaks to me is it just tells me that in order to have real fruit in life, we have to be willing to take on difficulties, right? We have to uh, be willing to live life uh, uh, in a little bit less clean state than we might otherwise prefer. But the reason that we do that is for the fruit, right? And so we live in a day and age where um, if you ever have any kind of problems or difficulties arising in life, it's almost as if you, uh, you've got something wrong with you, right? I mean, what, you're struggling with something. What, why, why would you be struggling with anything? We, we, we've got to fix this, right? But when reality, when we're confronted with the truths of Scripture, what we really see is that when we're actually trying to produce fruit, cr Christian fruit in our lives, a lot of times that's when problems are going to creep up. And so I think what this verse tells us is that we need to be a little bit concerned if there's no messes on, uh, in our life, right? I mean, if things are uh, as easy as they possibly could be for us, um, maybe that's not such a good thing after all. So... Um, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. Uh, that's Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. So in preparing for that lecture yesterday, I was just uh, struck just by the amazing truth that is in the book of Proverbs. Uh, truth that you can't just, uh, uh, that's very difficult just uh, as you're reading uh, through it, uh, one proverb after another, trying to read like I read through the Bible in a year. It's tough to actually get to the depths of that book just by doing it in that fashion. But anyway, it was a blessing to me. I hope it was to you as well. But as I said, uh, just since I was uh, busy preparing uh, for that and preparing for this, I'm going to be a little bit more note-bound. I hope that won't be uh, too distracting for you tonight. Uh, I think we'll still have a good time tonight. So last week, we began our study of the Pentateuch. We began by discussing several things to help us study the Pentateuch historically. We identified the historical author of the Pentateuch as Moses, the main figure of the book, but we acknowledged that someone after Moses died made some additions and some updates to the Pentateuch. And this updated version, I called it the Pentateuch 2.0, is the version that we read in our Bibles today. We asked uh, when the Pentateuch was written, but we couldn't really come to any kind of firm conclusions except that the Pentateuch 2.0, what we read today, was probably written sometime after the death of Moses. The last parts of that were, were coming together. 
and after the nation of Israel had entered into the promised land. We asked who the Pentateuch was written to, and we determined that the obvious answer was the nation of Israel, the nation that, uh, uh, that we see in the Pentateuch. And this is important because we know that essentially as soon as the nation of Israel uh, cross over the Jordan and complete conqu uh, completely conquering, uh, conquer the land, they begin to be unfaithful to the covenant with God that we read about in the Pentateuch, and they were in danger of being exiled out of the promised land. Furthermore, we noted that the author of the Pentateuch would have been aware that the law, the instruction that we see in the Pentateuch, did not have the restraining effect on Israel's moral life and character that perhaps had been hoped for. We also made some literary observations about the Pentateuch as a whole. We determined that although the Pentateuch, uh, we determined that the Pentateuch, uh, the genre, is a historical narrative. The author is trying to make a point by presenting, uh, by pointing the people to the past. We discussed some contractual rules. Remember, I said that one of the helpful ways that I think uh, I think it's helpful. I hope you do as well. One of the a uh, helpful way we can think of genre is to think of it as like a written contract between you and the author. Um, so we talked about some contractual rules for studying historical narratives and determined that the author was committing himself to giving a historical portrayal of past events, to selecting uh, what to include in order to most effectively make his point, and to give his readers explanations along the way in order to make his point clear. Our contractual obligations as readers of historical narrative include supplying any needed historical information we may need to understand the author's point and paying close attention to uh, what the author uh, includes when he's trying to uh, explain the narrative uh, in order to prioritize uh, the author's message. We want to get to the, we don't necessarily, um, uh, we don't always necessarily want to understand the historical events so much as we want to understand what this author was trying to tell us about a historical event. We also discussed the author's plan for writing the Pentateuch and determined that he most likely organized his narrative into large content blocks, including uh, what, I would, uh, what was known as the primeval history, uh, Genesis 1 through 11, the patriarchal stories where we learn about Abraham, Isaac, um, Jacob and uh, Jacob's 12 sons, uh, Exodus is e uh, Israel's exodus from Egypt, and so on. We concluded last week by beginning to discuss some of the major theological themes of the Pentateuch, and that's what we're going to focus on all of tonight and all of next week. So last week we began to uh, consider God's original intentions for his creation, and I gave you a statement that I hope uh, kind of summarizes what God intended for creation to be. Uh, the statement was this, God's glorious presence filling the entire earth through his glorious image bearers. Last week, we concluded by explaining the final part of that phrase, his glorious image bearers. And we saw that Genesis 1 presents humanity created uh, in God's image as the pinnacle of everything that God had created. The phrase you hear sometimes to refer to this idea is uh, the crown of creation. Humanity is the, the crown, if you will, of all that God has made. Um, we came to this conclusion by paying close attention to what I called the refrains of Genesis 1. It's kind of like a song, right? You see these refrains that are repeated. Well, Genesis 1 repeats a lot of the same phrases over and over and over again in it. So um, unlike the phrase, let there be, uh, which is used to refer to the rest of God's acts of creation, 
Um, Genesis 1 tells us that God said, let us make man. So there's a little bit of difference there once you get to man. Instead of man and woman being made according to their own kind, as is the case for everything else that God has made, we saw that humanity is made in God's image. And finally, whereas God evaluates each act, act of creation as good, when he evaluates creation after the creation of man and woman, God evaluates all that he has done as very good, right? And so we see through paying attention to these refrains that humanity, uh, God's creation of humanity, uh, his creation of the first man and the first woman is singled out as much more important over the rest of creation as kind of the, and kind of the central figure of that uh, creation. So tonight we're going to continue looking at God's original t intention for his creation. We're going to be looking specifically at the idea of God's presence among men in the Pentateuch. We're going to begin looking at a theological theme of human rebellion. That uh, We're also going to be looking at human rebellion, which is another theological theme that consistently uh, occurs in the Pentateuch. As we begin to s consider God's presence among men, we need to move into Genesis 2. Genesis 2 gives us a different but a complementary account of how God created the earth. Instead of a universal description like we see in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 kind of narrows its focus down into a paradise, uh, paradise uh, paradisical garden filled with fruit trees and rivers. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to start reading in uh, verse 8. So Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 8 once we all kind of get there. We're going to read uh, Genesis 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, um, I'm going to cut us off there at verse 17. So, At first glance it appears that these verses appear to reveal some rather insignificant uh, agricultural details. We're told about some rivers and some stones in these rivers, and we're told about some trees and we're not really given any kind of further information about why all this stuff is significant. I mean, what does it matter what four rivers were surrounding or flowing out of the Garden of Eden, right? And why does it matter what kind of precious stones were there? I mean, that might be nice for the people living there, but that's not us, you know? I mean, why should we care what was actually uh, uh, in that land, you know? Uh, why is the author telling us this? Um, well, based on similarities with later biblical passages, however, 
it seems likely that what seems like incidental comments concerning a piece of Mesopotamian farmland are likely intended to signify that the, that the Garden of Eden represents a far greater reality. That is, the Garden of Eden is a highly symbolic narrative. What do these details symbolize? Well, based on the similarities with later Old, uh, later Old Testament passages, we begin to see that the Garden of Eden is being portrayed as a type of archetypical sanctuary in which humanity, the man and the woman that God created, could exist in his presence. Um, let's look at a couple of examples. Look with me at uh, Gen Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, which says... Yeah, and Brian's got them up there. That's great. Thank you, Brian. Um, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Here we see God walks within the garden. Well, we see the same thing in passages uh, concerning later Israelite sanctuaries. In Leviticus chapter 26, 11 through 12, so it says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you will be my people. So here we see God walking in the midst uh, um, of his dwelling. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 14 says, Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. So he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Again, we see God walking through his dwelling, which in this case is the Israelites' camp. We'll return to that uh, specific point momentarily, but finally we see in um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, we read, I have not, this is God speaking, I, he's speaking to David, I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought the people up from Israel, from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving, the word there in Hebrew is walking about in a tent for my dwelling, and all the places where I have moved all with all the people of Israel. Here again, we see God is walking in his sanctuary, although the ESV say, uh, says moving in this instance. In the Hebrew, it is the same word which is used in the previous passages um, uh, that was translated walking. Not only is the same verb used to describe God's movement and presence within these verses, in every instance, Hebrew uses what's known as the hithpile stem. So in English, we don't really have a hithpile stem. We kind of uh, arrange our verbal system differently, and it's not really important for you guys to know uh, what the Hithpael stem is, just to know that if we were reading this uh, in the original language in which it was written, all of these verbs concerning walking are um, in the same tense, um, so to speak. So let's look at another uh, connection between Eden and later Israelite sanctuaries. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, after Adam and Eve sin and are driven out of the garden, we read, At the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim, and a flaming sword turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we see a cherubim guarding what I'm proposing we should understand as God's sanctuary. Well, again, we see the same thing in later biblical passages. In Exodus chapter 25, verses 18 through 22, um, which is describing the preparations for the building of the tabernacle, we read, And ye shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work ye shall make them, and on the two ends uh, uh, of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat ye shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherub shall spread out their wings above 
overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces uh, one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from the above the mercy seat, and from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will uh, give you in commandment for the people of Israel. As in Genesis 2 through 3, God's dwelling is uh, associated with cherubim. Look at uh, um, Second King, the book of Second Kings, chapter 6, uh, 23 through 28. These verses say, In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one ring of, a, of the cherub, five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of another. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measurement and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, the house there being the temple, of course, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the wall and the wing of another, the other cherub touched the other wall. <coughs> the other wings touched each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Again, we see God's dwelling place associated with cherubim. Our last passage in Genesis mentioned the tree of life. This is one of the trees found in the midst of the garden, the other being the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, is later Israelite sanctuaries also had furnishing depicting trees. In Exodus 25, 31 through 32, we read, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. So in this passage, we see a golden lampstand being formed to look like a tree. This lampstand would be placed inside the tabernacle where God dwelt. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Well, these same two verbs are used to describe how the Levites worked within later Israelite sanctuaries. In fact, the only time that these two verbs are used this close to one another, it is always referring to Israelite priests working in God's sanctuary. For instance, in the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, we read, They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister, the word there uh, is work, uh, at the tabernacle. They shall keep, uh, guard, the word there is keep, all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister work at the tabernacle. Here we have a description of the Levites working in the tabernacle, and as you can see from the bracketed words that I have up there, the same Hebrew words underlie this translation as do Genesis uh, chapter 2 verse 15. Let's look at one last comparison. In Genesis chapter 2, 12, we read, And the gold of that land is good. Bedulim and onyx stone are there. So the author specifically points out that there are all these precious jewels and stones in these lands surrounding the Garden of Eden. Well, in several later descriptions of Israelite sanctuaries, we see that they too are associated with precious stones and jewels. 
Let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 25, verses 3 and verse 7. These verses say, and this is the contribution. Moses is taking up an offering in order to build the in order to build the tabernacle, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, and then later it says onyx stones and stones for setting, and the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Here we see Moses is taking up a collection from the Israelites in order to build the tabernacle and his furnishings, and if we were to read um, the construction of these furnishings, we would see that all of the furniture within the tabernacle are made out of gold. Uh, furthermore, the garments of the priest are adorned with all these precious jewels that we read about. <coughs> Let's look at uh, fir- the book of First Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 2, which says, So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, and the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of rules, beside great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, Anthony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. This is David speaking, and he's uh, saying, he's telling us about the preparations that he's uh, making in order for his son Solomon to build the temple of the Lord. So we've seen at least five similarities uh, between the Garden of Eden story and later Israelite sanctuaries. So what is the point of all these similarities? Well, we need to understand that in the mind of the author of Genesis chapter 2, Uh, chapters 2 and 3, the Garden of Eden was God's original sanctuary on the earth. It was the place where his presence dwelt and where humanity, his image bearers, could dwell with him. This was part of what the author of Genesis is telling us in the Pentateuch. Furthermore, when we see the later sanctuaries, such as the tabernacle and the Pentateuch and the temple later on, we should understand that these buildings represent a somewhat of a reclamation of what God had intended the earth to be. We're going to talk more about that next week. So we're discussing the original intent for what God created the world. I've given you a statement which I hope kind of encapsulates an answer to that question, which is God's glorious presence filling the entire earth through his glorious image bearers. So far we have discussed God's glorious image bearers in Genesis chapter 1 and God's glorious presence Um, on the earth in Genesis chapter 2, but before we conclude this section, uh, I want us to address the final part of that statement, which is, how does the Pentateuch teach that God's glorious presence is going to fill the entire earth? Well, in order to understand this concept, we have to acknowledge uh, somewhat of a tension in the two creation stories, the one in Genesis 1 and the one in Genesis 2. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. These verses say, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. According to Genesis chapter 1 uh, verses 26 and through 28, God gave humanity two mandates. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they were also to subdue the earth and have dominion over every creature. 
In the Garden of Eden however, narrative, however, in Genesis chapter 2, we don't have any kind of indication that humanity was ever supposed to leave the garden. Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, indicates that God had placed the newly created man inside of the Garden of Eden for the purposes of working and keeping that land. Let's look at Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 15 through 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden and uh, to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded him, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the, of, of the garden. Genesis 2.16 indicates that the garden itself was humanity's food source. Nothing in Genesis 2 indicates that humanity should ever leave the garden to fill the earth or to subdue the earth as Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 28 mandate. Genesis, 20, uh, Genesis 3 uh, only increases this difficulty for us uh, of our problem because the punishment for human sin was exile from the Garden of Eden. We see that in Exodus, or Genesis 3, 24. So how was humanity to fill and subdue the earth while remaining within the boundaries of the garden? Well, the most likely explanation is that humanity was to continuously expand the boundaries of the garden until it encompassed the whole earth. This explanation indicates a correlation between the subduing of the earth that we see commanded in Genesis 1.28 and working and keeping the garden that we see in Genesis 2.15. Humanity was to cultivate the ground surrounding the perimeter of the garden and bring it under their control, thereby continuously extending the boundaries of the garden. This also explains why the author includes all these rivers and lands uh, outside of the Garden of Eden uh, in Genesis 2, 10 through 14. These lands and the gold in them would be of little importance if humanity was just supposed to stay inside of the Garden of Eden. But, however, if humanity was supposed to extend the borders of the Garden of Eden, the location of these lands and these rivers and their resources in them could eventually become very important to man and woman. So our first theological theme, we have examined uh <coughs> God's original plan for creation. I propose the following statement as a summation of what Genesis 1 through 3 teach on this point. God's glorious presence filling the entire earth through his glorious image bearers. Although this appears to be the original goal of God's creation, we don't have to look very far in our modern context or within the biblical context to realize that something has gone terribly wrong, do we? Our second theme that we're going to examine in the Pentateuch is the theme of human rebellion against God, otherwise known as human sin. We're first introduced to the concept of human sin or human rebellion in Genesis 3. Let's, uh, we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. If you'll turn there with me, it's, um, if you stayed at Genesis 2. Uh, it's just a flip of the page. So the book of Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
and she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made uh, themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What can we learn about human rebellion from Genesis 3, where it first appears? Well, there are several things. First, we should realize that human human sin stems from a desire to determine for ourselves what is good in God's creation. In Genesis 3, 6, we read that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Well, you should remember that the word good... Uh, the word good from our discussion last week, right? In Genesis 1, God describes his creation as good five times, and then uh, after the creation of Adam and Eve, we saw he, he describes all of creation as very good, so six times total. Well, what does the word good mean in this context? A lot of times we use the word good as a comparative term uh, in that it was good, but maybe not great or best or even excellent. I've heard some people claim that's actually how the word good's being used in uh, Genesis 1. Um, they're trying to say that God's original creation was good, but needed some work to make it great. I don't think that's really the case of what's going on in Genesis 1, however. The problem with that interpretation is that the word good in Hebrew just isn't used that way. Um, if Hebrew, uh, If in Hebrew you wanted to relay and teach that concept of good, better, best, you wouldn't really uh, do it with just the word good. A better explanation of the word good is that it indicates uh, what God determined to be acceptable. God is looking at creation and saying that what he has made is acceptable to him. Well, when we take this meaning of the word good and apply it to what we see in Genesis chapter 3, we can immediately see how inappropriate it is for the woman to determine what is good. By saying that the fruit of the tree was good, she has determined for herself what is acceptable. This is the initial problem with sin, isn't it? Sin occurs when we determine for ourselves what should be acceptable rather than allow God to determine what is, ex- uh, what is acceptable. Second, we should notice that the woman determines that the fruit is acceptable and delightful. She has not only determined for herself what is good, she has also determined that God has kept what is good from her. In this way, she has doubted the goodness of God. These two problems underlie all of sinful rebellion in the Pentateuch, and I would argue that these two problems underlie all of our sin today. Sin is an attempt to determine for ourselves what is good and acceptable in life, and a denial that God is the giver of all good things. Let's notice a couple more things about human rebellion in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 7, we read, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And then they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. In this verse, we see our rebellion against God has obvious consequences. I think it's significant that upon realizing the consequences of their sin, the first human couple immediately attempts to cover up or 
atone for those consequences. The way Genesis 3 describes it is that they knew that they were naked, so they attempted to fix the situation by covering themselves with fig leaves. Well, later in Genesis 3.21, we read, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This tells us that the first couple's attempts to cover their own sin was unsuccessful. Their attempts to cover their own sin are insufficient, and they require God's assistance. We can also start to see how sin compounds our problems. Adam and Eve thought that the fig leaves uh, coverings were enough to cover their sin, cover the consequences of their sin. They are continuing to determine for themselves what is good and acceptable, but again, we see that what they have determined is acceptable falls far short of what God has determined to be uh, uh, acceptable. We should also notice another attempt Adam and Eve to make to cover themselves in Genesis 3, uh, 11 through 13, which says, He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave with to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So in addition to trying to cover the effects of sin, we can see that the first human couple is trying to shift the responsibility of their actions uh, away from themselves. First, Adam blames Eve for, um, for, what the, for what he did, and then Eve blames the serpent, right? Again, this is an attempt to cover or justify themselves, right? They know that they have fallen short of what God has determined is acceptable, and they are attempting to justify themselves by shifting the blame uh, away from themselves and onto somebody, uh, onto somebody or something else. So already from just Genesis 3, we've seen that human rebellion or sin is an attempt to determine for ourselves what is acceptable. We have seen that human sin is a claim that God has withheld what is truly good from us. We have seen that humans have a tendency to attempt to cover or atone for our own sin, and we have seen that when these t- attempts don't work out, we have a tendency to try and justify ourselves by shifting responsibility for our sins to someone or something else. Let's continue studying the theme of human rebellion in Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to turn there in Genesis chapter 4. So in Genesis chapter 4, we read, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when 
Uh, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, and I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, well, when reading this uh, chapter 4 closely with Genesis chapter 3, it allows us to see several similarities between these two chapters. If we were to look at the structure of the two chapters, we'd see that they're actually structured in very similar ways. Both have an opening description followed by a dialogue between two characters. Both then contain an instance of human sin, and then we have another dialogue followed by a concluding description. So the structure of these passages are very, very similar, and there's several more similarities. Notice the questions that God asked. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, God asked, where are you? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, 9, God asked, where is your brother Abel? In Genesis 3.13, God asked, what is this you have done? In Genesis 4.10, God again asked the sinner, what is this you have done? There are more similarities. Notice the punishments for sin. In Genesis 3.17, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In Genesis 4.11, God says, now you are cursed from the ground. In Genesis chapter 3.24, we read, he drove man, uh, uh, he drove out the man, and at the east... Uh, of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, in Genesis chapter 4, 16, we read, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what should we make of these similarities? Well, one, obviously imp- one obvious implication is that both chapters are concerned with human sin and its consequences. The similarities draw these two passages together. Perhaps, however, one reason that the author is drawing these two passages together with all these similarities is so that we will note some important differences between the two passages. Whereas Adam and Eve never complain about their punishment for sin, notice that Cain does. In Genesis 4.13, we read, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Notice also the human response to sin. As I noted previously, Adam and Eve seem to be ashamed of their sin and attempt to justify themselves. Cain, however, doesn't really seem to care, does he? He says, am I my brother's keeper? He asks in Genesis 4-9. Notice also, whereas Adam and Eve had to be driven from the presence of the Lord, Cain does not have to be driven from God's God's presence, but but simply leaves. In Genesis 4-16, we read, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in Nod, east of Eden. So what can we conclude from these differences? Well, one thing that we can certainly conclude is that upon reading Genesis chapter 1, we could be forgiven if in our hearts we hope that the effects of human sin would perhaps stop right there in Genesis 1 and it would never get any worse than just um, eating a piece of forbidden fruit. Uh, Or perhaps we would just be willing to hope within our hearts that, well, maybe sin would just have a gradual effect as it spreads throughout humanity. But unfortunately, those hopes are dashed in Genesis chapter 4, right? 
I mean, Cain doesn't eat a piece of forbidden fruit. He straight up murders his brother, right? And so the effects of sin on humanity are not going to be gradual. They are going to be immediate and absolute. Also, we're going to see that the uh, the deeper humanity gets into sin, the more that they tend to think that their sin isn't really all that bad. I mean, Cain's remarks to God are kind of astonishing, right? I mean, God, your punishment you're giving me isn't fair. If, if I'm out wandering in the field and somebody finds me, they could kill me. Yeah, like you just did to your brother Abel, right, Cain? I mean, and so what we see in uh, Cain's mind is that as sin is taken root in his life and rooted deep within his soul, his understanding of the seriousness of sin is begin to erode it, right? And sin all of a sudden isn't this this awful bad thing that he should be punished and should actually be killed for. It's something that, well, God, you're kind of being, uh, taking this a little too seriously, aren't you? I mean, your punishment is harsh, right? And so we see that, uh, sin and from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 24 uh, we see this growing callousness uh, towards sin and towards God right if we were to continue to read in Genesis uh, chapter 4 we would run into a descendant of Cain a man named Lamech and he actually says not only have I killed a man I've killed a young boy simply because he insulted me right and so we see that as uh, humanity is progressing they're um, their tolerance for sin and their understanding of sin begins to, and the seriousness of sin begins to erode. So um, it's about time to uh, wrap up. Uh, I was going to get into Genesis uh, or Exodus 32, but I think I'm actually going to save that for next week. So uh, next week we're going to continue the theme, the theological theme of human rebellion and sin, and then we're going to get some more themes of the Pentateuch. So I'm going to conclude us in prayer. Thank you all. Lord,